Zechariah 3 and verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Here, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes, Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. And God had his blessing to that reading of his own inspiring word. Well, tonight we're here in Zechariah chapter 3. This has been the fourth vision of the Lord in Zechariah. And just a reminder, it's easy to be confused because, of course, there are two characters in the Old Testament with the name of Joshua. The one we're speaking of is not the successor to Moses who led God's people in the conquest of the promised land. There's a whole book of Joshua, you know, and we, we preached through it not so long ago. But this is Joshua who served as a high priest after the return from the Babylonian exile many, many years later. And he was thus very much alive and active doing his job at the time when this book was written um, by Zechariah the prophet. But the thing is that Joshua is being shown not on earth but in heaven in this vision. God is showing us and he is showing Zechariah, Joshua, there in heaven. And as we look at this vision, as we consider the, the things before us, I think it is, of all the things I could say in, by way of introduction, let me just say this, that as a high priest, his job is to represent all of God's people. So when we look at Joshua, we look at his situation before the Lord, his situation indeed before Satan, and all that happens to him in this brief but very powerful image and, and vision we must understand that he is representing all of God's people. So when you look at Joshua, and when I say these things about Joshua, you need to see yourself represented in him. All that we read applies also for, for us. And of course, this is all to add what we said earlier, that we are always looking to see in Scripture the object of it, the, the thing that is the, the great... Uh, the thing that which all Scripture is pointing to is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in all Scripture, and we certainly are going to see that in this portion in Joshua in Zechariah chapter three. 
So in that vein, we consider the case of Joshua the high priest. That is our title, the case of Joshua the high priest. And again, as in him as our representative, we see ourselves. I think we see the future. As this case plays out, we see how our own case plays out. Or rather, and more specifically, how it already has played out. And so there will be no such case in the future, because indeed these things have already been done on our behalf in Christ. So the case of Joshua the high priest, with these four points. One, the accuser. Two, the accusation. Three, the ruling. And four, the basis in justice. The case of Joshua the high priest. And our first point is the accuser. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the first thing that immediately comes to to mind as we consider this, if we again are seeing ourselves in Joshua the high priest, if there's someone standing to oppose Joshua, guess what? That means that someone is standing to oppose us. Our situation in this world is one in which we are opposed. And we wonder how it is that this is the case. Because we know that our God is sovereign. He's in charge of all things. And how is it then that there is this enemy, this opposition that is around? Well, we think of something even more basic than that. And that is the fact that the creation, all the things that have ever been or ever shall be, they exist to glorify the living God. And God in his wisdom knows and has determined That his glorious attributes are more put on display when there's an enemy than when there's not. And there is a Satan. Yes, he's doing all these things for his own wrongful motivations. He's doing them all out of his hate and rebellion against God. But God in his wisdom makes use of there being such an enemy. In order that all these, his glorious attributes might be known. We don't have time to go into this in great detail. But maybe just as an illustration. Um, I, you just imagine something like, I don't know, I, I don't put my, my approval on every last thing that happens in it, but what about reading or looking at Lord of the Rings? And what would that wonderful trilogy be like if there was no enemy? What would it be like? Just ordinary people, ordinary hobbits going about their very ordinary mundane business. We never get to see any aspect of greatness. We never get to see any courage, never any justice, not even any mercy. None of these things would ever be seen just mundane, ordinary events, boring. We wouldn't be reading it, would it? Well, again, this is a, a minor, tiny little example here. Far, far more than that. Far more than that. God is putting on display all of these wonderful attributes. And if we're going to find out about that, then, of course, there has to be an enemy. And so it is in this world. And Satan there is standing at the right hand of Joshua the high priest because God wants it that way. Now, without giving away everything from the start, let's just make sure that we understand that just because there is an enemy to oppose Joshua and therefore us, doesn't mean that God is not good. The goodness of God is not impugned merely because there is such an enemy. And again, I'll give you an illustration. Imagine me preaching a sermon, I don't know, to rally the troops, giving a a pre-battle message of some kind. I'm rallying the troops, which I say, now the bad news is that we will ultimately be defeated. 
And along the way uh, to us being ultimately defeated at every point, when we think that we have a victory, actually it will turn out to mean that it's only one more way in which it's serving the purpose of the other side. Because the one on the other side has the ability, of which we can do absolutely nothing, to turn all of our clever ideas against us until, as I say, we're ultimately going to be defeated. He's going to crush us under his feet at the end. But thankfully, of course, that's true of Satan and not of us. That is his situation and the situation of those who follow him. And so the goodness of God is not in danger by the fact that there is such an enemy. We know he is going to be, he is already a defeated enemy, and he will certainly soon enough be destroyed. Well, anyways, with that in mind, we consider this accuser. This is a case, this is the way I'm, uh, this is, it's being clearly portrayed as if it were a legal case uh, in the court of heaven, and that's the way it's going to be presented here, and we're thinking about this accuser. Now, the funny thing is, that is the, the name of Satan. It's a title more than a name. It is Ha-Shatan. And I, I saw Ha-Shatan there, the Satan, the accuser. That's, his, that's the name of the game. It's not really a proper title, so much, a proper name so much as it's his, his title, his job description. And what does it mean that he's the accuser? Well, we, we learn about that situation in the book of Job, where you know the situation is kind of similar. We're in the courts of heaven, and, and there people are coming, and Satan comes, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Well, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around everything that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Meaning he is filthy rich. And now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. That's the idea. God, here's my, you know, you're asking me what I think about Job. Well, as the accuser, I'll tell you what I think. I accuse him of just being mercenary. Yes, he follows you. Yes, you know, he does it superficially because only he wants the cash money that you give him and the protection that you give him. And if you were to take that away, guess what? He wouldn't love you. He wouldn't care about you. He would curse you to your face. So there. That's the accusation. And that's Satan's job. He's the accuser. And as we know, of course, it didn't actually work out for Satan. The accusation was false and God in the end vindicates his servant Job throughout all this. And we need to remember that that such will be the case. But again, this gives us uh, help to understand what's going on here. Satan is doing what what the accuser is supposed to do, and he accuses this man. And I think he actually has more to work with than in the case of Job. Because what he was saying about Job actually wasn't really true. But what he's saying about what he's saying about Joshua, I think it's a little, is hitting closer to home. Because as we go on from the accuser, now the second point is the accusation. What is the basis of this accusation? Because as, you know, as the case plays out, Satan actually doesn't get as far as he does in Job. He's not allowed to speak, really. But the basis of the accusation is clear enough from the description we have in verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. That's, that's the basis of the accusation. He's got these filthy garments. 
And you might say, well, clothing, that's just a trivial matter. It doesn't really matter how, how we dress, does it? But certainly not so here, because we know from the parable of the wedding feast that this is a matter of the utmost importance, because clothing in, in Scripture, these, these things actually has to do with our sin or our righteousness. It's what is, we are wearing in our souls that matters, you see. It's not the physical clothing, it's the sin or the righteousness that we have. Those are the kind of, it's either rags of, of, of sin or rich robes of righteousness, And we know from Matthew 22, this parable of the wedding feast. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is hell. He is sending him to hell. He is not going to heaven. He is going to face the wrath of God for eternity. Why? He didn't have. He wasn't being clothed with righteousness. He came as he was with his sin. And he's cast out into outer darkness. And that's not extreme. That is a picture of the righteous judgment of God. That our clothing is our moral condition before him. And the garments are either our sin or righteousness. And there is not the slightest chance that those who have sin on them, any sin at all, any stain whatsoever, these filthy garments, certainly not, is going to remain in heaven. And Satan knows that. They're going to be cast out. And there is no doubt that Joshua, like all the people he represents, and it may well be that he is pictured not only as Joshua the person with his own sin, maybe he's also being pictured as Joshua the high priest bearing the sins of all the people, representing all of his people, and therefore those are dirty, dirty garments that he's wearing he's a sinner he's a sinner by nature he's a sinner by choice Romans says that there is none righteous no not one there is not a single one who even seeks after God we are sinners condemned in his sight all of us were sinners by nature and by choice and Joshua was just like it and all the people he represented were sinners And it would seem, again, unlike the situation with Job, it would seem that Satan really has him here. Okay, I mean, the evidence is pretty clear. It's not like he's looking with a magnifying glass to find some stain on that robe. He said this described as filthy. It's there. Satan has him dead to rights. It would seem. That's the accusation. But third, when we consider the ruling, we don't get that far. Because what it says is, well, really, what it's described is the accusation is kind of dis- dismissed by the judge. We, again, we don't even get Satan. Now, Satan, be, you know, we, go ahead now. Here's your chance. State out the case in, in all of its length. We don't get that far. The judge, now, who is that judge anyways? That's a question. Who is this judge? Well, it's, he's described as the angel of the Lord. And some of your, your translations will have that in, in capital letter, angel of the Lord, because this angel of the Lord in, in such situations, we're not talking about some random angel, some created being. But I think in this situation, we're talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. You know, what, what happened before the incarnation? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Was there a Son of God? Of course there was. He's from all eternity. He's eternally begotten by the Father. The, the, the Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. 
And we know that before he took on human flesh, he often appeared to his people as the angel of the Lord. Well, in any ways, we need to get straight the situation here that there are three figures mentioned, and two of them are described as standing. Who are they? Joshua is described as standing. That's what you do if you're an accused. And then there's also, so he's standing before the angel, and we have Satan standing at his right hand. So he's also standing. He's there as the accuser. But is the angel, now I used to think that the angel was standing also. And that maybe he was the defense lawyer, the advocate. And you would be, you would be um, I guess you, it, I could understand if you thought that way. Again, I thought that up until recently as I considered this a little bit more. You would certainly be forgiven for thinking that, that the angel is actually the advocate rather than the judge. Because this judge comes across as a little biased. You know, the angel seems to be kind of an, a, an ardent advocate for Joshua, even though he's standing there in his filthy robes, guilty as sin. And yet he's not even allowing this, this accuser to speak. He begins, in fact, by rebuking this accuser. In verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a, a brand plucked from the fire? See that? He just rebukes Satan. He describes him, among other things, as a brand plucked from the fire. And we understand that in the light of the coming back from the exile. And, and, and God, in his justice, had sent his people away into uh, this, this terrible seven years in this horrible kingdom. It was like a kingdom of Satan, by the way. The kingdom of Babylon is the picture of that. Sent away. And, and now they're being brought back, a brand plucked from the fire, and there they are. And, and, the ba- and what he's saying is that the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord in his sovereign goodness has chosen Jerusalem. That's, that's the, the, the basic sense of this ruling that he gives. It's on the basis of the sovereign choice of God. Yes, they are defiled. Yes, yeah, true. But the Lord has chosen him and all the people that he represents. And that's the end of the accusation. Now in another sense, by the way, this is the situation of all of us who are redeemed from the fires of hell. We are as brands plucked from the fire. That's what it says in Jude 1.23. Some save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And that's our situation, isn't it? We, in our sin, we absolutely deserve hellfire. And if we stand as redeemed people, we stand before God as those who have been saved. We are like brands plucked from the fire. Well, getting back to the court case, we have this accuser, Satan, and we have this accusation. And, I mean, really, we have the evidence. Um, there does, it's, it's pretty obvious the evidence is right there. He's guilty of sin. And, and all of a sudden, we have... This brand being plucked from the fire, and it seems a little unfair. From Satan's perspective, I wonder if he thought that this would have been unfair. He's prey, and we know that he is, he is seen as a lion. Satan comes as a roaring lion, seeking to devour those whom he can. And his prey that he was about to pounce upon is being plucked away from him. He had it dead to rights, and it's just unceremoniously being plucked away from him. Because God is not on his side. The, the angel is not on his side. He's not listening. And instead, he, he seems to be extremely biased in favor of Joshua the high priest. And you know what? There is nothing that Satan can do about it. 
Did you know that? There's no further arbitrator for him to appeal to. There's no other authority. He can't go to Strasbourg to the Court of Human Rights. That's not going to help him. He just has to tuck his tail between his legs and walk away because Josh was out of his grasp. And ladies and gentlemen, that is Paul's point in Romans 8.31 which speaks about us. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And look at the details when he says, when he goes through the list, who could it be? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give all things? Right? If he's just given us the contents of this box and that's all, we'd say, well... He gave us that, but I don't know if he's going to really give us as much as we owe. But actually, he offered up his own beloved son, his only son, for him to be a sacrifice for our sin. There was no greater gift he could have possibly given. He gave it all at the most infinite cost. What else is he not going to, what, what is he going to withhold now? Is he going to be stingy when it comes down to it? Of course not. And then he goes on to say, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. You see, that's, he's the judge. He's the one who catacrinos. He's the, the judge. And that's the question. Who is the judge? It's important, isn't it? A lot of court cases hinge on, on the judge because sometimes these judges are pretty biased. And the question, if you're, if you're the accused, oh, thankfully I've got, I've got the judge. Or, oh, no, I've got that one. Well, 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 the question is, who is our judge? Who is the one who might just condemn? It is Christ who died for us. And furthermore, is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. And that is, his, that is what he does. Ninth day, if Satan is accusing, guess who is doing the, the, uh, uh, the intercession? Even now, it is Christ the one who is going to be judging. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress... Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. In verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. What is he talking about there? He's not talking about good angels. They're not going to stand to oppose us, accuse us, destroy us. No, he's talking about Satan and all the fallen angels that follow him. None of those things. Nor things present, nor things to come. Because we fear that, don't we? The things to come. We don't know what's coming. But he's, he's, he's throwing it all in the same category. None of this. Not the things present, nor the things to come. Nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Because Christ is the judge. Is there bias? Maybe. You know, we who are believers, we're called his friends. He says that. Jesus says, oh, you're my friends. In fact, he also says that we're his bride. We're the spouse of Jesus Christ. You know, if this were a human situation, this judge would have to recurse himself because he is standing in judgment of his own spouse. But this judge doesn't. This judge, in fact, takes the opportunity to throw the the, the case out of court. The reason why is in actuality there will be no trial for us. 
That's what happens when he's the judge. There's no further one to appeal to. There is no further higher court. There's nothing that, that is, is there. He gets to just throw the whole case out because that's what it says in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the summation of our situation in Christ. No condemnation. It's gone. Well, we come to our fourth point, and we wonder if that's really the case. If this judge has this amazing bias towards us, doesn't even let the accuser speak, just rebukes him, fixes the matter, is settled. We know there's no condemnation for us. What is the basis in justice? Because we know our God is just, and we might be tempted to imagine that he's unjust. Well, I can tell you it's not. It's done in the, the most perfect of justice imaginable. And we can see that as we consider a little bit further what is being done for Joshua. In verse 4, Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And see him, he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. And just to make sure that we get it, we have to understand what the picture is. He doesn't leave us any doubt. He takes away the filthy garments and he says, I have taken away your iniquity. That's it. It's about sin. And he's taken away the sin and you say, It's just as simple as that. Just at divine fiat, there's the sin, it's gone. Well, from our sort of perspective, maybe it is, but it was, it's not from Christ's perspective. It's not that simple at all. There's much, much more for this story. And for that, we need the whole of Scripture, particularly things in the Old Testament like Isaiah 53 that speaks of this suffering servant who by his stripes we are healed, the one who suffers on behalf of his people or of course, in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament, so many parts of it that speak of, of Christ suffering and bearing our sins for us on the cross. And the fact is that so far from this being an, ex- an exception to justice, a perversion of justice, absolute and perfect justice would be carried out on the angel. In fact, more perfectly than what will be carried out in the damned in hell. Those who are outside of Christ, who have their own sins, who show up on that last day still wearing their filthy garments of their own sin, they are going to be cast into outer darkness. And they will be paying that penalty, but they'll never finish paying it because their guilt is infinite. And they'll be paying on it forever and ever, and it never finally will be paid off. But you know that perfect and complete justice was done on Christ for his people. So far from it being unjust, no perfect justice was done. And the Lord taking the wrath due his people on the cross. You know, even as we think of this situation of the, the garments being taken away and other ones, you know, there, we, there's something we call the conservation of energy. That, that energy just moves from one place to another. It never really disappears. And likewise, I, I would say there's a principle of the conservation of dirt in, in, in washing clothes. Right? It doesn't just disappear. We might think so, but when we, even when we put it in a washing machine, it doesn't just disappear. The stain doesn't just evaporate into nothingness. What we're trying to achieve is transferring that stain somewhere else, you see? And so our clothes go in, the water and the detergent do its business to, to solve that. And then it's, if everything works, now if it doesn't work, actually that stain just lands in some other piece of clothing or sticks around in some various way. But if it does work, it's lifted and it's taken away and it goes into the drain there to soil something out somewhere down the line. But it's still, it's still there, of course. And that's the situation, I think, with this imputation of sin. That's what we call this transfer we're talking about. It's the imputation 
This sin is taken off us, but it goes somewhere. And where does it go? It goes to Christ. And I think in another sense, if we could imagine that that scene playing out more fully in the fullness of what we know in the New Testament. where Where did they put that, by the way? It never says exactly what happens to those filthy garments. Well, later on, Christ would lay aside his glory and he would pick up those garments and he would wear them in all their filthy stench. And he would wear them on our behalf. And he himself would pay the penalty due for all that, the wrath of God. Cast into that outer darkness, bearing the fiery wrath due for all that sin. Until it was gone. And that's the basis upon which then, that that sin is taken away from Joshua and from all those whom he represents. And then on the other hand, and there is this wonderful thing. Not only does he take off the old, and the rest of verse 4 says, And I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And that's the other part, you see. This imputation, it's a, a double imputation. It's not merely that our sin is being imputed to Christ who, who bears it for us, is also that he imputes his righteousness to us. Because just even merely if we just take all that, what happens to Joshua, even if his sin is taken away, he's standing there naked. He has nothing to wear. He has no wedding garment. He has no righteousness. Who, who among us can say that we have merited something before the Lord? Of course not. But rather, Christ's perfect righteousness in that he has kept all the, the perfect law of God, that is the righteousness that is given to the saints. We wash our robes. That's what it says in Romans, or sorry, Revelation 7. You remember that picture? Behold a great multitude whom no one could n- number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. And the question, verse 13, Then one of the elders answered saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's not the water and the detergent of our washing machine. It is the precious shed blood of Christ that makes us clean and gives us these robes of righteousness. He gives them to us. Now, In these things and the basis of justice is done not because we earn our salvation, not because Joshua has done this, but because Christ earns it on his behalf. And this wonderful work of imputation, this transfer is given to the Lord Jesus. You know, Romans 4, 6 says, Just as David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That is the situation of Joshua, the high priest, and all those whom he represents, standing before the angel of the Lord, our judge, and our redeemer. Our applications are straightforward from these things. The first one is that we ought to wash our guilt away. You know, I would say this. I think that guilt 
is gnawing away at this generation. The people, the culture, the generation that we live in, that guilt is gnawing away at them. There is no doubt that some mental illness is, is physical, it is chemical, it's, of course it is. But this epidemic that we face, this enormous epidemic of mental illness, is it all that? I think in some cases it's because this guilt of which we can't even talk about sin in this world anymore. There is no such thing as good or evil. All the things that are evil are being called good. And there is therefore nothing that people can do. They have the law of God written on their hearts. They they know that there is this objective law that they're held accountable to. They know they haven't kept it. They know they're guilty of sin. And yet, there is no absolution. There is no way. They can't even, there's no place for them even to confess their sins. They're told, no, there is no such thing as sin. And of course, this, this guilt is gnawing away at them and it's destroying them from the inside out. That is a situation of, of so many of the people that you and I are going to interact with in the world around us. And I say to you, wash your guilt away. There is a mechanism, there is a place, there is a situation in which you can confess your sin. There is an absolution available. It's not through the Roman Catholic priest. It's not through the psychiatrist. It is through this advocate, this judge. We can come to him and we can confess that we are sinners. And we can ask of him that I want, you know that treatment you gave Joshua the high priest? I want that. I want to be washed. I want my, my sin to be washed away in your blood. And to be clothed in your righteousness. And he'll give it. You can come to Christ and do that. And I would say if you have, then you, you have been set free from guilt. If you wash your guilt away, then don't try to go get it again. You have been set free from it. And we live in the wonderful assurance of that kind of pardon that... Satan has nothing on you. What, what does he have? Again, it is, it is not just the evidence. You know, the, the physical evidence is there in these filthy robes. And, and they're gone. The evidence, the judge has just gotten rid of the evidence for you. And he has gotten rid of the sin itself, you see. If you've put your faith in Christ, it's not just that, that a good case cannot be brought against you on some technicality. It's that the basis of that case, in fact, has been washed away. It doesn't exist for you. And therefore, there is no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the good news. And the only thing I want you to do about that is to revel in it if you're in Christ. That's it. Secondly, we we ought to know that we have an enemy. We have to be aware of that. There is an enemy. There is someone who stands to oppose us. We're thankful for the way that this court case has played out. It's worked in our favor. But it doesn't mean that we don't have an enemy. We do. And for that reason, we should put on the whole armor of God. I, I've said that God, in God's great wisdom, it is his will that we have a Satan. There is the Satan who is around to do his work. An enemy of our souls, yes. But God has given in his goodness provision against this Satan. Ephesians 6.11, a passage that we should all memorize as the bold print on some emergency procedure. Put on the whole arm of God that, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He has wiles. He works against us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We revel in our redemption. We revel in the fact that Satan has no accusation that he can level against us, but yet we take those precautions that God has given us. We put on the whole armor of God. But even still, again, you ought to be aware um, of something. I, I, I'm guessing that Satan knows about this. Uh, he seems to know scripture. I bet he knows this one. I, I bet he wouldn't like me saying it, so I'm going to say it all the more. Romans 16:20, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Okay? His, his doom is certain. Ein Festeberg, Martin Luther's great hymn. His doom is certain. He doesn't minimize the reality of Satan. If, no, if anyone knew the reality of Satan's opposition, it was certainly Martin Luther. But he also knew that his doom was certain, and we must keep that in mind as well. That promise that was given so long ago, perhaps on the very day that mankind fell into sin, there was a promise that Satan's head would be crushed, and it soon enough shall be. And you know what's going to happen when, we, when that happens? We'll rejoice. We'll rejoice, and we anticipate that. Thirdly and finally, we must remember that we have an advocate. You know, we had... We, we've mentioned it sure seems like our judge is, is, is actually our advocate, and he is. That's exactly the way he's described in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, through righteousness. And we know the basis upon which he pleads. Any, any accusation that could be brought before us, any, any way that Satan, not that he has access anymore to the heavenly throne room, but even, even if he did... If he sends word up and says, look, he's a sinner. Look what he's done. And what is Jesus Christ going to say about that? What is he going to say? Hmm, I believe I've paid for that. (laughs) Cost me a lot. I I remember each and every one of those sins. You think that? I think so. I think that the Lord Jesus Christ is fully aware of each and every one of the sins that he paid for. It was his great cost. They weren't trivial things. They weren't little pinpricks. The cost of this sin was great, and he bore it all. He knows us perfectly. He knows all that we've done, and he paid for those sins. We can be thankful for it. We have an advocate. And we have an advocate in the Holy Spirit, John fourteen sixteen. And I will pray the Father that he will give you another helper. That's the same word, by the way, paraclete, an advocate. Another advocate. That he may abide with you forever. And so what we have in the end is we consider the, heaven, the Father's plan for us to save us. And we consider the fact that we have this advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And that we have another advocate, the Holy Spirit. What do we have? A triune God who is for us. That's our situation in life. If we are in Christ Jesus, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who are our advocates. They are for us. God is for us. And I want you to go in that knowledge, in that strength, in that encouragement to the week before us. Let us pray.
gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, with such advocates, how can we ever despair? Lord, you have determined, yes, you have determined that there would be a Satan, there would be an accuser, but it is all for your own glorious uh, reasons, for your own wise reasons, the display of all of your great justice and mercy and grace. And Lord, we are thankful that we have such an advocate. We are thankful, Lord, that Joshua the high priest was not condemned on that day along with all those whom he represented. But rather, Lord, his filthy robes were taken off and glorious robes of righteousness were put on him. And we know, Lord, that such is the case for all those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, how we pray that we would revel in the reality that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, even though we must take precautions in how we pray that we would every day put on the full armor of God and stand against all the wiles of the wicked one in your strength. And Lord, we revel in the fact that he is a defeated foe and soon enough you shall crush him beneath our feet. Pray, Lord God, that we would be assured of our salvation if we are in Christ. We pray, Lord, for those who are not, that they would come to have this wonderful, glorious redemption given to them in this gospel. We pray, Lord, that we would go forward confident in you, knowing, Lord, that there is no accusation that can possibly stand, no one who can keep us from the love of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.